Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. This program is all about helping you thrive in some of the most challenging coaching situations. Our aim is to support you in bringing your coaching to the next level, whether you're new to coaching or you're already an expert professional. Hello, welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Burus, and this is episode 46. I'm delighted to introduce to you today Whitney Johnson. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I liked how you started to say Johnson first. That means my Twitter handle is taking root, which makes me very happy. (laughs) Yes. So we all know now your Twitter is Johnson. So you've written a book on Disrupt Yourself. Could you define for us what you mean by personal disruption? Yes. Um, So for those of you familiar or not with uh, disruptive innovation, um, this is personal disruption is basically the act of using a practice that businesses and companies and countries often um, employ, which is they introduce a product that the market deems fairly inferior, like Amazon versus Borders or Uber versus Yellow Cab. And then that product eventually upends an industry and then taking this practice and applying it to you as an individual and to your career. Wow. Okay. And you also mentioned what is the S-curve and how can the S-curve help companies and individuals understand personal disruption? The S-curve is actually was developed in 1962 by um, a scientist uh, named E.M. Rogers, and he developed this curve to help, help him understand how ideas um, will spread throughout a culture. And over time, the curve has been used increasingly frequently to help people understand how quickly an innovation will be adopted, and in particular, disruptive innovation. And so at its simplest, if you think, you know, trace in your mind the idea of an S, at the very low end, um, you see that you've got this base on the curve. And so when you first try something new, you'll find that initially progress will be pretty slow. You'll be working hard, working hard, working hard, and not much will be happening. But then around 10 to 15% market penetration, you'll hit this inflection point and you'll suddenly start to move very, very quickly or enter into hypergrowth. And then at the top of the curve, um, which is the top end, again, now you've reached saturation or Um, 90% roughly, and you may be working very hard and not much will be happening. And one of the reasons that the S-curve is so helpful when you're thinking about personal disruption is it helps you understand time delays. Because typically whenever you're um, we, we tend to like things to, that react immediately. So for example, you flip a switch and the light goes on, boom, you know, cause and effect, they're completely linked. But whenever you're learning something new, cause and effect are not necessarily linked. And so the S curve um, helps you understand how an innovation will be adopted. It also helps us understand how we learn. And so I find that the S curve is very, very helpful in helping us understand personal disruption and especially the psychology of disruption because what you then know is at the low end, you're working very hard. It looks like you're not making much progress. That helps you avoid 
discouragement. And then as you go up that sleek, sleek, steep back of the curve, you're going to be increasingly competent. It's hyper growth. You feel confident. All your, your synapses are firing. And then at the top end of the curve or saturation, you can do things pretty automatically. You don't have to work that hard. But because it's so automatic, boredom can kick in. And at that point, if you don't jump to a new curve, this plateau that you're on that seems so comfortable and safe can actually become a precipice. And so this whole S-curve helps us understand personal disruption because it helps us understand the process that we go through when we learn something new and how this idea that if you can master those S-curve waves, think of a wave in an ocean, then you will have a competitive advantage in an era where we've got accelerating disruption. Yes, and it's, it encourages to be a constant learner. As soon as you exactly. get competent and uh, too confident and too comfortable to start learning all over again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So if you had to summarize what you just explained to a 10-year-old, what would you say? Ah, oh, great question. So I would say I would tell a 10-year-old to picture the ocean. And I would say um, when you're learning something new and you're trying to you watch surfers trying to get up on a surfboard. It seems scary, and they're they're not quite sure of themselves. But then, as they start to ride that wave, it's so exciting watching the surfer ride that wave. And then, as they get to the top of the wave, it looks like everything is magical and wonderful and exciting. But at that top of that wave, you know that once everything has crested, it's time for you to go. Um, find a new wave to surf on. And that's what happens when you learn. When you first start, it's hard. Then it gets easier, easier, easier. Then you've learned as much as you can, and it's time to go find a new wave to surf on. And so that's how I would help a 10-year-old try to imagine it in their mind. What a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. So Whitney, what prompted you to write this topic? Huh. Well, um, I so it started with my analysis when I was working on Wall Street. I was working as an equity analyst where it was my job to uh, decide whether or not a stock was under or overvalued. And at the time, I was working in Latin America um, looking, and this was about around 2002, and I was watching wireless um, telephony just completely overtake and in many cases obliterate fixed line telephony. And I didn't quite understand why it was growing so quickly. And then I came across Clayton Christensen's frameworks of disruptive innovation and realized that those frameworks were helping me understand how something that had started at the low end of the market that was very inferior initially in terms of sound quality had completely overtaken um, wireline telephony. And as I started to understand that in the context of seeing what was happening in my professional life, and I dug into these ideas, I began to have this sense that these frameworks or ideas also applied to me as an individual, that I had worked very, very hard to get to the top of my game professionally as an equity analyst, but I had now started to reach the top of that curve. I had maxed out in terms of what I was learning. I had maxed out in terms of promotions. I had maxed out in terms of my pay. And so I realized that if I was going to really progress further in my career, I either needed to have a manager internally say, go ahead, jump to a new curve, or I was going to have to disrupt myself and jump to a new curve in a place outside of Merrill Lynch where I was working at the time. And so that really prompted this exploration of applying the frameworks of disruption to individuals in this sense that 
companies actually aren't necessarily the disruptors. It's the people and the individuals inside of the organization that are doing the disrupting. So what are you disrupted to now? Well, a number of different things. Um, If you think again about the waves in the ocean, you know, there are continually waves. And so when I first disrupted myself, I disrupted myself to write a children's book, which, by the way, was never published. And that's part of one of the things that happened when you disrupt. Not everything works. Um, And I also, um, but I, I... eventually became an entrepreneur. And at that point, I co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School and um, did that for about five years where we invested in disruptive companies, both publicly traded and private companies. And then in 2012, I disrupted myself again and I left to uh, write books. And so now I'm publishing my second book and to consult and advise Um, companies and individuals that are trying to um, figure out how to drive either individual or corporate innovation through personal disruption. So it's a continual process. Wow. And tell us, can you tell us the title of this next book or is it still a secret? Oh, no, it's an it's it's actually coming out um, on October 6th. So it will be out very soon. And it's titled Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. Okay, and it's just coming. It's hot out of the press, practically. Yes, yes, I'm very excited about it. It's it's always fun to you know have something that essentially feels like a child or a baby, you know, sort of come come into the world. So it's a very exciting process in time. Is it a book that's sort of grown out of your first book? You know, it's interesting. So the very first book that I wrote was um, titled Dare, Dream, Do, Remarkable Things Happen When You Dare to Dream. And that book was a very um, personal book in many ways. It wasn't a business book at all. And I had discovered that a lot of people didn't believe that their ambitions and dreams and gifts weren't quite so important. And so I'd really written that book to try to inspire people to believe that it was their privilege and birthright to dream and to figure out what their dreams were, etc. And for quite some time, I had people say to me, I don't understand, you've written a book about dreaming, and now you're reading a book about disruption, you sure seem to like the, you know, D's. And I didn't understand why they were connected, even though intuitively, I understood that they were. And then finally, about a year ago, it came to me that dreaming is in fact the engine of disruption because every time that you're at the top of a curve and you make the decision or a top of a wave and you make the decision to take that surfboard and go to a new wave or to swing like Tarzan from one curve to the next there's that moment of free fall and in that moment of free fall to have the courage to have that moment of free fall you basically need to pack this parachute of a dream and so it's the dream that really is at the heart of our willingness and 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 mustering up the courage to disrupt ourselves and this current book that you are talking about disrupt yourself can you tell us a little bit more about it and about the seven variables that can speed your progress along this S curve? Yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned, um, there's, there is the S curve, as you just described, Katrina. And so what I've identified is, okay, if you want to move up that S curve and you understand that you'll have a competitive advantage if you can move up those curves quickly and then sort of effectively jump to a new curve, I've identified seven variables that will allow you to do that more quickly. And so 
Um, the first is to figure out how to take the right kinds of risks, meaning to figure out how to take market risk versus competitive risk, be willing to play where other people are not playing, even though it may feel a little bit scarier. The second variable I identified is to a willingness um, to play to not only to your strengths, but to your distinctive strengths, meaning what you do well that others in your sphere do not. So be willing to be a fish out of water and to pair that with taking the right kinds of risks. The third one that I talk about is a willingness to embrace your constraints. We tend to feel like if, if we had a lot of money or a lot of time or a lot of people you know, agreeing with our ideas um, that everything would work smoothly. But what I've discovered is certainly at the low end of the curve, we're short on one of those things, if not all three. And part of being able to move up a curve more quickly is a willingness to to embrace those constraints to the point that they actually become a tool of creation. And um, so, for example, a willingness to say, okay, I don't have as much time as I want, so how can I take that lack of time and um, turn that into an advantage for us as an organization? Do I learn how to delegate better, for example, because I have less time? Or do I rethink a process? Or do I automate things differently than I would if I if I had an excess or surplus of time. The fourth variable that I talk about, which is really important, is, is battling entitlement, um, which is this belief that I exist, therefore I deserve. And I think this is especially important inside of an organization because and large organizations in particular, because as you start to move up that curve and and see the fruits of taking the right kinds of risks and playing to your strengths, you'll start to have some success and you can begin to believe that this is the way things you know are and, and will always be. And yet it's right in that moment that you're feeling that way and you're seeing the margins of your business expanding and you seem to be firing in all cylinders that you need to say to yourself, ah, I need to figure out and start developing competencies to jump to the next curve. So it's that willingness to say, I don't want, you know, I don't exist, therefore I deserve. I exist, but I need to think about the next curve. The fifth variable is to take a step back to grow. Sometimes we need to pull back a little bit. We may need to jump to a new um, role inside of an organization. And for a manager who sees a loss in productivity temporarily with their personnel, that could feel like a huge step back. And yet, a willingness to allow your people to take on a new role can, over the long term, enhance productivity and certainly increase employee engagement and retention. The sixth is to put is is to uh, give failure its due. To recognize that failure is essential to is essential process of understanding how to um, be successful. And then the seventh is a willingness to be discovery-driven. Um, and each of those variables allows you to move up that curve more quickly and um, jump to a new curve, and as I said, to have a competitive advantage, both as an individual and as an organization. Talk about the discovery-driven. Is discovery to find the new wave? Is that what you mean? You know, it can be. Um, I think that's an interesting observation. I hadn't thought about it in, in that respect. Um, it's a number of things. So, for example, one of the there's a study that was put out by Corn Ferry International, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They, you're a large, you know, executive recruiter firm, and one of the variables that they discovered that was most important in a CEO was the was was curiosity and the ability to deal with ambiguity. And so, those are both traits that allow an executive to be, you know, held in good stead. 
The reason being is that if you look at 70% of all successful businesses end up with a strategy different than the one they initially pursued, all of that leads to the fact that when you're starting a business, starting a career, developing a division, it's important to be willing to take a step forward to gather feedback and then adapt accordingly. Have a general idea of where you want to go, but a willingness to pivot and to say, as we're pivoting, we're learning, we're moving forward. That works. That's what's going to allow us to be successful. And, and being able to deal with ambiguity is that not everything's clear as something that is well established in a mature market. It's more at the beginning where you're sort of discovering and, you know, trying things out and then readjusting. Is that right? Exactly. And the reason that that this idea of dealing with discovery is we I think, you know, you and I talk about it and think, well, that's obvious. But the reason that it's so important to emphasize it is that our brains actually tend to like certainty. And so certainty means, well, I want to, you know, look at this market and know exactly how big it is, etc. Um, and yet, uh, and yet, when you know exactly how big it is, there are probably already competitors there. Someone was there before you were, and they're more. You're less likely to be successful than if you're willing to say, "I don't know how big a market is. I'm going to figure it out." So I'm going to be discovery driven. The odds of success, according to, to disruption theory, are actually six times higher, and the revenue opportunity twenty times greater when you're willing to to approach things, dealing with that ambiguity and being discovery-driven. Excellent. Good. I'd love to hear this. I'd love to have my assistant hear this too because she thinks I'm <laughs> or, you know, taking too many risks. But thank you. So t tell me about these seven principles on the learning curve or the S-curve. How do you apply it to managing talent? Great question. Something that I think is really important as we think about this S curve is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, that when you, you know, you get to the top of the learning curve or the top of that wave, um, you know how to do the job. Um, you're quite competent. People are coming to you or coming to the people that work for you, asking them for advice. They can do it readily, easily, um, sort of on automatic. The thing is, is that when they can go on automatic, their brain stops um, firing these, you know, the dopamine that makes it really fun and enjoyable for them. And so they start to get bored. And when a person starts to get bored, they're not working at peak capacity. And so they can actually become less effective and productivity can wane. And so one of the challenges, I think, for any person who's managing talent inside of an organization is to be willing to say to yourself, okay, I've got these people, they're really talented, and it's a te I'm tempted to just say, I like you right where you are. But if I'm going to really have my organization um, be hyper-effective, what I'm going to do is when people start to hit the top of that learning curve, I'm going to be willing to redeploy them and say, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice that productivity near term because I know in the long term, they're going to stay here. They're going to be learning. They're going to be more engaged. And so that will, and in other words, if I allow my people to bring their dreams to work, they're going to allow our firm to achieve the dreams that it wants to achieve. So there's this interesting piece where where if we're willing to do that in managing our talent, we'll actually be, over the longer term, a much more successful firm. And, and the research certainly bears that out. 
Yes, and too many companies wait too long to redeploy them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, yeah, in fact, the piece of research I was referring to says that if you um, – the, the highest performing companies, meaning surpassing on all financial metrics, are those who develop the capabilities before they need them. And then translating that to our discussion means they allow people to jump to new curves um, before they necessarily want them to. So the flow theory from uh, Chick Mahaney, he just he exa says exactly the same thing, that the competence has got to be a little bit lower than the the job or uh, the project that they need to do so that they have to absolutely focus all their attention on the job at hand. If it's too easy, if their competences are above what they need to do, then they get bored and right. they, they deconcentrate. You know, it's like uh, our famous uh, Swiss tennis player, Federer, if he were to start <laughs> to give lessons to people he would start to being slopping in his tennis because he doesn't need to concentrate. It becomes an automaticism and the challenge right. isn't there. Right. And so, uh, Whitney, tell us, if you had to summarize your book in 10 words, what would you say? <laughs> Let's see if I can do it. Companies, you count while I talk. Um, companies don't disrupt. People do. Here's how in seven steps. Wow, I'm Did impressed. Did I do it? Yeah, awesome. <laughs> that's great. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much for this interview. Tell us one last tip for the man young managers. What would you say to them to, uh, to help them in their careers? For a young manager in your career, I would say as a young manager, you're at the low end of the curve. And so at the low end of the curve, if you think about the 10,000 hour rule, it's going to take you about six months before you feel like you know what you're doing. And so be patient with yourself. Understand that you're going to iterate. Um, be open to learning and um, making these little mistakes because every time you make those mistakes, if you ask the question, what can I learn from this, you'll then start to be able to move into that that competence and confidence, but be patient with yourself and give yourself about six months. And after those six months, then you can make the decision if you're on the wrong curve or not. But those first six months, you've got a lot coming at you. Just be patient, hang in there, work really hard, and you'll start to get to that inflection point where you really start enjoying your work. Thank you very much, Whitney. Valuable advice. And Thank tell you. us, where can people get in contact with you and what's your website? Well, my website's very simple. It's WhitneyJohnson.com. Um, you can reach me there. You can also uh, find me on Twitter at Johnson Whitney, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and then you can also obviously email me at Whitney at WhitneyJohnson.com. You've written several books. Where can they purchase your books? And especially uh, the last one we discussed about the yes, seven the principles. Yes, the most recent one is go to Amazon.com um, or you can just go to my website at uh, WhitneyJohnson.com and find it there and then click through. If you don't want to buy it on Amazon, for example, you want to buy it through another vendor, you can do that. But probably the easiest way is just to you know go to Amazon, type in Disrupt Yourself and Whitney Johnson and you can just go right there. Okay, and for our European friends, Whitney is written W-H-I-T-N-E-Y. Ah, okay. okay. So yeah. that, Whitney Johnson, thank you so very much, Whitney. It was a pleasure and very interesting. And I hope to have you on the show another time. Oh, I would love that. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can subscribe to all future podcasts at excellentexecutivecoaching.com and sign up for monthly newsletters featuring all the latest tips and techniques to bring your coaching to the next level. Join us again soon. And until then, bye for now.